0: Then when one day like a truck just rolled up and like threw a bag on our driveway, I was like, oh god! When I was like opening it and and it was gone. So they clearly went in, maybe from smell, God knows what. They found the haggis, removed the chucked haggis, it, yeah. yeah, chucked the haggis,
1: removed the hagg. Wow. But
0: but also the haggis was still a uh, uh, not necessarily an illegal item, but it was like a controlled item because the FDA only in the last couple of years has. Allowed for the importation of haggis. Yeah, it was um, not allowed. <laughs> hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing?
2: I'm glad I walked into that.
0: Yeah, I was telling Marsh
2: Annie that <laughs> you get we now, should, you know. in in place of our introductions. We should just use Martin Scorsese's because he has one recorded for both of our films.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know? <laughs> Maybe
2: just a clip.
1: You're not getting out of introducing the <laughs> <your> film.
2: <clears throat> I just thought yeah, we're doing something a little different this week. Here's
0: Marty. You know? <laughs> aye, 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 Have you guys started? No. Oh. The policeman isn't there to create disorder
3: The policeman is there to preserve disorder Gentlemen, get the thing straight Once and for all
0: We clear the streets along this route Deploy our men and create an impassable barrier A gauntlet, if you will He won't have a chance I challenge you to a duel Tell
3: oh, you wow. the truth, this guy's starting to get online <laughs> You want to crown him? Then crown your But they are who we thought they were And we let them on the it's hot. That's hot out there Let's, We all walk out
0: there very, very... Very hot.
3: Open fire!
1: Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me in person Uh-oh. is Ryan Saunders. And as always, Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick movies. In response to that theme, and we watch them, and we come on here, and we talk about them. And that's what we're going to do today. And we've got Ryan in the house, very exciting. It's episode 122. But before we get to that... You've got mail. We've got a a little something in Marsh's mailbag. Let me dig around
0: here. Oh boy.
1: In my... Fiction imaginary bag, yes. We have a letter here from our old pal, Meredith, who wrote in uh, quite a while ago. For the is architecture back. episode. Yes. Another instance of gauntlet coincidence. I'm getting suspicious. oh Hello, gentlemen. Roughly two years ago, I sent you an email about listening to your architecture episode while I was working on a project in in an architecture archive. Well, today it happened again. I was minding my own business at work, listening to last week's episode, 120 Gauntlet Motor Speedway, while making an inventory of a box of radical leftist Pittsburgh newspapers from the 1970s. It's fully not related to what I'm looking into for work, but I've enjoyed torturing myself looking at the calendar of events on the last page of each issue. Cinephile culture in Pittsburgh is is kind of picking up again post-ish post post-pandemic, but leaves a lot to be desired. You used to be able to see gospel according to Matthews, a brisky point, the blue angel, a Dolce Vita, and Hollis Frampton presenting his films all in a single week. We used to be a proper city, etc., and so on. <laughs> I was reading one such calendar of events in Pittsburgh. Fair witness volume two, number one, January, September 30th, 1971, when a startling and paranoia inducing moment occurred. You were discussing the 1970 Brian G. Hutton film Kelly's Heroes just as I was reading over the events going on on Sunday, January 19th, when Kelly's Heroes was playing down at the Playhouse Theater at 7.30 and 9.30. Attached as a calendar of all these screenings, by the way. (laughs) Wow. Uh,
0: How did you know? How did I know? (laughs) Well, um... You know, I, I mean I, I think about Kelly's Heroes probably at least <laughs> twice a day, every day, so Kelly's Heroes is always on my mind. That's 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 all I can say. About
2: that.
1: That's very true.
2: This is true. The amount of Kelly's Heroes references uh, that don't make the final cut of every episode of the Gauntlet is too many to count.
0: Almost more than 122. <laughs> I actually have a very. Uh, Marsh has probably seen it. I don't know if you have, but I have a, a cool Kelly's Heroes T-shirt yes. of uh, it is. It is just the the like head of of Oddball um, played. Uh, is it Oddball? Yeah. Yeah. Oddball. Don Rickles. No, that's Crap Game. Crap Game is Don that's Rickles. R-. <laughs> Oddball <laughs> is Donald, Donald Sutherland, Sutherland as the hippie tank commander. Yes. And it's just him with the, the tanker helmet on, and below it it just says waves because he's always talking about positive and negative waves, you know. So maybe we'll send one of those to our to our great listener Meredith. I'll get you a good oddball T-shirt. You know?
1: <laughs> yes, thank you, Meredith. As always, you can send us. you got mail. Letters. Questions, comments, double features, or fun coincidences too. Marcia's mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast gmail dot
2: I wonder if they ever showed the Pinchcliffe Grand Prix in Pittsburgh around? A question for uh, further research. That decade, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, Meredith does point out that. Uh, Little Richard and the Almonds were, were also in town, and uh, that they, they would have gone to that, uh, probably over a, a Clint Eastwood war movie. Mm. But, uh, we appreciate it. We love it.
0: Yes, we definitely
1: Especially, do. yes, to archival uh, material. I'm going to go over this calendar uh, thoroughly later. Nice. Looks like a lot of good stuff going on. Those heady days. All right, let's... Uh, let's...
0: Pittsburgh used to be so cosmopolitan, you know? <laughs>
3: What
1: happened? I was there a couple of years ago. Beautiful city. Beautiful city. I loved it. Um it is a hep, 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 <clears throat> episode hundred one hundred and twenty-two the World Cinema Project. And as I explained at the end of last episode, uh, I thought we could celebrate the release of Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, not by seeing it, because uh, none of us have seen it by the time we're recording this, uh, but by celebrating Martin Scorsese in in another way, through other means. And that, of course, is the World Cinema Project, the Uh, organization he founded to help uh, restore and distribute uh, classic world cinema. And we love that here on The Gauntlet. Yes, of we co- do. Of course. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so that's what I, what I asked them to bring. I asked them to bring me uh, films from the, the World Cinema Project collection, which is in the, the 50s, uh, number-wise, by now. And uh, boy, that's what they did. <laughs> Can you imagine if you didn't, though? That'd be so <laughs> funny. Like, we've bucked up against the theme a little bit sometimes, but not just, like, outright. Uh, Refused. <laughs> 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 that'd be really funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I brought a Sidney like... J. Fury film. Yeah,
2: I brought a film that I think they should restore
1: <laughs> with George Lucas money. <laughs> yeah. George, give us your money. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get right into it. Uh, Ryan, you had the earlier film of the two. Why don't you tell us uh, what what world
2: you brought uh, to the pond? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I love the World Cinema Project. I think it's one of the most noble things that you can do if you have a surplus of money. I think it's nice that Marty was able to get George Lucas's money to really (laughs) fund this thing. I think it's pretty cool. Um, I've seen a good chunk of them. I've kind of made it a point of, you know, taking a dip every now and then back on those waters and, and watching those films. I've brought uh, at least one of them on the pod before, In Xiong, yes. the Lena Bracca film. That that was restored um, by the World Cinema Project. And it's actually something I love kind of scoping the release calendar because um, I remember, Andy, the, the film you picked was one I was about to watch in terrible shape because it's only ever existed in like a horrible VHS copy that has like lines cut through the middle of it. But I was so desperate to see it that I was like, ah... I'll do it. But I, you know, I was like, let me look up. Are there any restorations on the way? And there it was. It was like in the works. It was on the calendar. It was going to be out in the next year or so. Um, mm. So I, you know, it's nice. It's a fun thing to follow. See what Marty's up to, like where the money's going and what what films are on the docket. But yes, yeah, so I've seen a good amount of them. And I was looking at the list and I was uh, thinking about what are some countries that I maybe actually haven't seen many films from. I mean, that's sort of the idea of, of the project, right? Is it's, it's a lot of countries where film restoration uh, is significantly underfunded or just like woefully neglected and then coming in to kind of rescue a lot of these films. And I was realizing I think the only indonesian films i've ever seen are a couple i had like screened for the chicago film festival that i don't think ended up making the cut they weren't terrible or anything but the only memories i had were like okay there was one or two of those and then yeah sure i've seen the act of killing um i've actually never seen the raid but Whoa! i know i know but like that's usually what people if they think indonesia they're like that's the one right so when i saw that there was this film from the 50s from indonesia i thought like oh this sounds really cool and i saw that some people referenced you know i like kind of tracing with these world cinema project films like how could they maybe have influenced marty like because these are all films he typically really loves unless he was just sort of convinced to restore them and um yeah i don't know this one i think has some like taxi driver shades a little bit Mm -hmm. i was i was thinking while watching and i know some people have kind of pointed that out but the the film i ended up going with is from 1954 called After the Curfew, directed by Usmar Ismail. And with so many of the films in the World Cinema Project, this filmmaker can be said to be, you know, the pioneer of Indonesian cinema. So many of the, like, singular films that make it from all these different countries, I think, very frequently. It's like, yep, and that's sort of the banner filmmaker for for this one, because, of course, that's the first film that's going to go and be grabbed and and saved uh, from the archives. And uh, a little bit about the filmmaker before I talk about the film um, and sort of scene setting, like when this film takes place. So the filmmaker, I actually just learned like moments before we started recording, actually went to film school in in Los Angeles. He was uh, part of like one of those really early crops of cinematography students at UCLA. That was in 1952, so two years before this film came out. But before that, he did serve in the Indonesian army uh, during the Dutch colonial rule. And he was also a co-founder of a newspaper um, that was had a title of Rakyat, meaning the people or the populace, um, and he was like on journalistic associations and he was really covering the, that transition in the late 40s from the, the war with the Dutch, the fight for independence, and then eventually when the Dutch left and Indonesia became independent in 1949. So he was both served in the military and someone who was actively documenting it as it happened which to me makes perfect sense considering the film itself. It tells the story of a man who is coming back from the revolution, someone who fought in the Indonesian armed forces. His name is Iskandar. He comes home, and at this point, the the war's at its end. It's 1949, but there is a military curfew over the town. And it's kind of actually, you know, I mean, it's crude to, to laugh at this, but Marsh and I kind of laughed when it started, and it's like, the curfew will be lifted January 8th, 1950. You know, and it's like, okay, wait till 1950 before we can all kind of go back out after 10 p.m. And, and before 5 a.m. But that's sort of the, the tone as the film begins, because as he's on his way home... It is after curfew, and he's kind of avoiding the the military police that are out on the street. And the film itself is about a man who's really trying to reintegrate himself into society and also coming to terms with the facts that a lot of the ideals he was fighting for maybe are contradictory based on some, like, folks that initially were in charge of him. Like, for example, there's, there's this lieutenant he revisits, and he realizes that that man is is participating in some shady business practices and he wants Iskandar to be a hired hand for him and it just doesn't feel that it's aligned with his own revolutionary ideology from from the time and he's becoming really disheartened by that and it's causing him to look back on his past in the army when he served and some of the decisions that were made by higher-ups and the orders that he was forced to follow through on and realizing that he may have been put in some situations that you know weren't really above board. That he had to participate in some some nasty stuff. But that's most of the film. It's him, you know. I I think the film is maybe one night. It's like all one yeah. really long night. I don't think one it's day yeah, night. like yeah. one day. You see him like start a new job. That doesn't work out. It was like kind of you know jumping the gun there a little bit. On a night of a big party, he he visits some former friends. One of whom is now a pimp. He as I said goes and like meets his lieutenant and he kind of just like sees how people have returned after this conflict and what kind of future might be set up for him and the film itself does have like that great balance of something from the 50s like this where there's both the Indonesian Golden Age cinema influence of having some nice melodrama scattered throughout, some really nice imagery, and yet also this sort of documentary realism. This is all really immersed in the, in the story that had just taken place a few years before. It's all raw and real. It has that journalistic quality. Um, it's got some great music. There's a, a few party scenes that are a, a party I would certainly love to attend. And, yeah, I was, really, I was really captured by this film. I'm so grateful that it got restored, that was put a part of this collection, and I was able to experience it, because who knows how long it would have been before I ever got a chance to see it. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about it. So that is After the Curfew from 1954. Thank you very much.
0: Andy, why don't you tell us about the film you brought? I felt that I had a little bit of a handicap um, this week picking, uh, because as we've discussed, Ryan has made it a project of his to, to try to see all of the movies. And though he hasn't seen all of them, he's seen way more than I have. I think probably more than you and I combined, I would guess, uh, so I was like, holy shit when Ryan's like, yeah, I've seen about 26 of them, I think, or something like that. <laughs> I was like struggling because I was like, uh, oh, you know, part of me was like I want to try to pick something new for all of us. Uh, but it it while I was like checking in with Ryan, I was sort of like, man, I I, I, was, I saw like on Letterboxd even like, okay, he's already seen this one. He's already seen this one. <laughs> and I I was like trying at first to to select something that that none of us had seen. But my top choices were, were all movies that Ryan had already, you know, watched or logged. So I just kind of gave up on that and just said, all right, I'm just going to go with with uh, one that I, you know, the top of my list, Ryan be damned, you know. And uh, when I brought it up to him, he, he was delighted and said he'd love to watch it again. So <laughs> I was like, all right, let's go. Perfect, you know, perfect. Perfect. Uh, This is one that I had been meaning to see for a while. Um, It had uh, come up for me in a previous week as something that I I just made note of as like, oh, I, I, I need to check this movie out. And like Ryan said in his intro, I think part of the fun with even just Going through the entirety of the list is realizing, wow, there's there's so many countries cinematically I've I've yet to visit or or haven't visited very often, and one of those on the list for me was the country of Angola. The film I brought is Sambizanga from 1972, directed by Sarah. Mel Doror. Um, you know if Ryan's film focuses on the aftermath of a uh, you know post-colonial war, mine is about the genesis of one. Uh, this film is uh, set in 1961 on the eve of the Angolan, I guess you could call it revolution, in which they they kicked out their, ultimately kicked out their Portuguese colonial overlords. Uh, The film concerns uh, uh, largely. I mean, there's 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 quite a few characters that we're going to visit with, but but certainly I think the emotional center of the film revolves around a husband and wife. Domingos and his wife, Maria. Uh, Domingos is a um, sort of a construction worker of sorts, I believe. Uh, I think he's a, like, drives a tractor for one of these, you know, colonial construction projects. There's moving
1: rocks. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah, you know, whatever the Portuguese are having these folks do for very, very shitty pay, I'm sure. Um, and uh, quickly in the film, he is scooped up by the Portuguese secret police, the colonial police of sorts, for suspected revolutionary activity. He's then whisked away to a series of, you know, brutal interrogations and, and various kind of bureaucratic prison hellholes, um, launching his wife into a desperate bid to try to locate him, to try to find him, to try to... Um, you know, beg the authorities uh, to release her her husband. Um, in addition to that, there are some other characters who are um, members, we can assume, of the MPLA, the, the revolutionary Angolan organization that is is plotting to overthrow the, the, the Portuguese colonial masters. Uh, who are also concerned, of course, about this arrest. And uh, they are are sort of there to, to also kind of mirror her journey from, I think, less an emotional standpoint, but more a concerned political standpoint. You know, what would this arrest mean if he is interrogated and... Uh, is tortured into giving up more names, right? Would he potentially bring down their entire organization? So we sort of have these two threads of groups and people who are very concerned about the fate of this man, Domingos. Um, it's a beautiful, heartbreaking film. Um, I'm sure you can imagine this is not a Hollywood film, so the fate of Domingos is... is. Um, it's Not looking good, folks. We can, we can probably assume that much from the get-go. Um, but yes, it's sort of a social realist film. Uh, I think it, it, it speaks to the experiences that Sarah Maldoror had studying in the Moscow Film School with her buddy, Usmana Simbene, early in her career. Um, it is a, a, an activist film of sorts, uh, I saw an interview with uh, Maldorar and her daughter that was a part of the uh, the Criterion's release of this film, and you know the daughter was was basically saying, you know, her her mission. Her mother's mission was essentially to bring awareness of African struggle to the African people, you know, as a form of validation, but also to the world, to show the world, you know, true representation of, you know, African identity. And so really this, this film... Is a sort of uh, a bittersweet, at times very angry, um, but ultimately joyous film about the birth of a revolution through struggle and through sacrifice. Um, yeah, it's it's described by many people as one of the greatest African films of, of all time. So, you know, I think that's why it was on my radar for for forever, and I'd been meaning to see it, and and I'm so glad that this topic came up to, to sort of light a fire under me to to start that moment, to, to put me on my journey uh, to engage with this film because, yeah, it is uh, really a, a, a breathtaking uh, piece of cinema. And again, shout out to Marty, And shout out to George Lucas (laughs) for for shelling out to to uh, preserve this film, to remaster this film, to 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 make sure that it lives forever in in our age. Um, So, yeah, that was the, the film that I brought, Sambi Zanga.
1: Thank you very much. I had not seen either of these films, so this was certainly a a delight uh, this week. Uh, I just looked it up. I've seen... before this week, I'd seen fifteen of the fifty-four uh, World Cinema Project movies. So, a lot of work to do, a lot of worlds to visit. You yeah, know? yeah.
0: I mean, look, I'm you've seen way more than I have. So, so the, the numbers still track. If I'm in my just going off the top of my head, that we combined haven't seen <laughs> yeah. as many as Ryan.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess like the obvious connection is, is what you pointed out, Andy, we have the the very beginning of a revolution, and we have the aftermath of a revolution. And it's very interesting how these things sort of interact and intersect, like even knowing what little I know about the history of both of these countries after these moments. I mean, uh, it's not great, you know, Um, thinking about after the curfew as a very classic like post-revolution text it reminded me of Bertolucci's great early film before the revolution where that's like the idea we're always before the revolution because by the time the revolution's over we're back to a place where we never wanted to be in the first place you know that sort of thing the cyclical nature the destructive nature of revolution uh and so it was really fascinating yeah in in the film ryan brought to see that like this disillusionment like so fully articulated you know and seeing that sort of like betrayal of ideals and ideas that the character goes through contra to the hope and joy of sambizanga which you know ironically yeah they They got their independence and then there was a civil war until the 2000s where the U.S. is pouring money into, you know, I mean, it's like we visited a proxy. We we visited it
0: already on the podcast when we watched when we watched (laughs) Mophie, because uh, in Mophie he gets sent as part of the South African armed forces to fight against the Angolans in their conflict. And we
1: also visited it in No or the Vainglory of Command
2: because those guys are in Angola. Yes. Yeah, I think it remains unnamed, but it's like heavily implied as Angola and not Mozambique. The ledger at the end is
1: 1974. Oh, right, because I guess... Yes, I, was, I get yeah, you. Yeah,
2: yeah. But I'm pretty sure there are, like, a few other things that signify, like, this is Angola, that they're all driving through. So that's, you know, two years after—it's kind of like the sequel to Samba Zanga, uh, in many respects. But yeah,
1: like, just the fact that their, their success led to then, yeah, this, like, fucking Cold War proxy war that lasted fucking forever. I mean, it's like, brings me back to the other film, you know?
2: Like. Yeah, I mean, it's insane to think about you mentioning that disillusionment that— uh, Iskandar feels in in after the curfew and the fact that, Not only did this film come out in such close proximity to to the end of that, like coming out in 1954, but that this film is set like that disillusionment sets in before the curfew itself is even lifted. Like he's we're always before the curfew. Right. Like it's it's something he's feeling immediately, even when it seems like here's the sweet victory. The curfew's going to go away. We are independent. And it's just straight out the gate. He's like, ah. I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, not think about great. how
1: we're introduced to him—a flashlight and boots, like on the concrete at night. He's dodging the enemy, the MPs. I mean, it's like he's still in the war, you know. And that's, of course, like his his big problem. <laughs> he's he's still there, you know. And and everyone
2: tells him move on. It's in the past. But he's uh, he's not there, you know. Yeah. Right, a freedom fighter who legitimately believes in his ideals still being hunted by the police force in his own state, even after they supposedly have succeeded in reaching those ideals. Yeah,
0: it's a really startling way to just, like, kick the thing off. Yeah, well, and, you know, I mean, it's not the immediate open, but it's very quick in Zombie Zanga, where we have the authorities come crashing down on Domingos and just scoop him up and and whisk him away in the early morning from his from his home from his village or I don't even know if it's a village it, they're,
1: they're like, like settlements yeah, yeah like shanty towns like, yeah
0: like like a company town you know for whatever like construction outfit he seems to be working for but but yeah i mean both of these films open with this idea of a sort of uh, a lack of freedom or being a, a characters who have to face the fact that they are not free, not free to move or live as they see fit. You know, I think though, for me too, uh, with specifically after the curfew, as much as I, you know, see this as you two do as being this film about, you know, what happens after revolution. I think I also was just really moved by it as a portrait of simply, you know, like post-war narratives, the idea of soldiers coming home regardless of the conflict and specifically like uh, grappling with PTSD because, you know, long before it was categorized as PTSD when it was referred to as things like shell shock or combat fatigue, this movie is a, a powerful examination of the psychological effects of of war, of killing, of, of becoming a a weapon of destruction, and then simply being dumped back into peacetime and expected to transition effortlessly to to being a civilian, to being someone who isn't solving problems with guns or grenades or knives or bayonets or that sort of thing. And and yeah, you know, it, it kind of has opened up a lot of Like, you know, doors for me in you informing us about his studies in Hollywood, essentially at that time in the in the early 50s, which was still an era when I think like post-war film noir narratives were very, very present. Like it got me thinking about so many of those great, you know, Hollywood noir that were dealing with soldiers coming home and essentially being or resorting to criminal behavior you know i was thinking of things like crossfire you know these guys who who spent years killing and and solving problems that way and coming home and and being told that there's this great society waiting for them and then very quickly seeing that their opportunities are are not nearly as open to them as they they might have been led to believe you know and and this really now like I mean, it has that look, it has that feel of, you know, uh, of like, a to me, like a, a Hollywood noir almost on a certain level. And, and certainly like an Indonesian film, but one in which I can now see his influences being there in L.A. and probably going and watching like so many of those, those films.
2: Yeah, I was really struck by that first day of work scene where he's back and right away you know his father in law is like i got a job set up for you you know and i think everything i think it's gonna work out and it's just it doesn't work at all we get that cool montage <laughs> of, yeah. of like all the machines everything going like work labor here we go and he's you know they go to check in on his productivity he's got all these papers on his desk and they're like okay what have you gotten done and he just says I don't know what this is. (laughs) You know, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I can't make sense of this. And he's just scolded and mocked. And then he reacts with violence. He punches the the boss in the face. Like, how dare you talk to me like this? Like, give me a goddamn break. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's that thing of just being immediately reintegrated. Like, go to work. Like, you've been back presumably for a day, (laughs) uh, depending on how time is condensed in this. But it's like, get right back to work. And just how radically different sitting there with all these papers and having no onboarding is compared to the life
0: he had just been living for multiple years. Yeah. I mean, his boss, I think pretty much just like says to him, like you were a Lieutenant, you can figure this out. I mean, and that's it. That's yeah. like all he's given <laughs> for this job. Right. Like
1: there's an immediate hostility from the people in the office towards him that I found interesting because of course, like, there's the younger men who are like, oh, this is the great ex freedom fighter, uh, you know, kind war hero. Yeah, just sort of like cynically mocking him. Yeah, the I
0: mean, one guy loses his desk to him right away. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> true. It's like, but, I'm always
2: getting shuffled around. But yeah, that was
1: like, yeah, that was very startling that they just basically saw him as, like, yeah, this piece of shit soldier or something Mm -hmm. like
0: sure yeah and i I think also like again this this critique that is you know constantly like you know simmering under the surface of all the social interactions in this film of of you know you know inequality that continues to exist now in this society like hey i thought we threw out our colonial overlords i thought we're building an equitable society and and clearly some people are being treated better than others already i mean he gets just simply like handed this job with presumably no qualifications and so yes i think there's this also idea for a lot of these employees like that's just cronyism right you know like yeah this guy's just getting my desk now and just given a job so no one helps him everyone is more or less kind of like okay you're this big war hero, you're this guy that's just now given a nice position in the public works, like, go to work, man, do your thing. Because no one reaches out to this guy. They, they, I would assume, want him to fail, you know? Yeah, it, it's interesting
1: thinking about it then, like, after the curfew is, is, yeah, about, like, becoming civilian, you know, after being trained to kill and all that. And Sambizanga, then, is sort of, like, becoming revolutionary or becoming soldier, right? Going from being just a citizen to actively, you know, working against uh, the systems that you're living under. And one thing that just absolutely fascinated me and sort of blew me away is the focus on the network, right? Like, that's most of the film is, like, showing you how this network sort of operates and people walking very far to deliver a single message so that Mm -hmm. the struggle can continue right and it, it reminded me of Army of Shadows which again is a film by someone with personal experience of clandestine networks and revolutionary activity and so it's just yeah it's really fascinating to see all these threads sort of come together of all these concerned citizens who all of a sudden this fucking old guy is just sitting in a chair sleeping in the sun and his grandson's like I uh, just saw someone get arrested and he just like springs up with his cane and it's like, all right, let's go, let's go, you know, and just springs in into- I thought this guy was dead. Mm-hmm. And here he is now like a bedrock of this network, you know, and it goes from children all the way up and women and everyone's involved. Right. So that sort of spirit is everywhere.
0: You know? Yeah. The, the, the community that you see, uh, you know, solidifying around this event like shows you the the foundations of like organized united struggle and and certainly in a place where it has to be very low tech of course right uh people who are deliberately deprived of resources resources that can aid in this kind of thing i mean like i was struck by you know the you know the the immediacy with which the the other, you know, people who live in this area, like once Domingos gets like, you know, yanked by the cops and thrown into a Jeep and, and taken away, I mean, instantaneously, it's like everyone circles around Maria Domingos's wife and and is there as like a support structure and a concerned like yeah you know group like you know we've got to be there for you emotionally we've got to be there they bring her food they they bring her you know uh their their spirit and their energy we're all in this together i mean if one of us is taken essentially all of us are taken and that's the 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 sort of drama that you see building right for this yeah this elaborate network that that they are are very 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 concerned that he's taken it isn't just like oh that's his bad luck no that's that's bad for all of us. That's bad for every one of us.
1: They don't even know... Who, some of the guys don't even know who he is for most of the movie. They're like, who got taken? They're like, we're not sure, but someone got yeah. taken. And we have to like organize our entire lives around the fact that this one person got taken, whether we know who he is or not. You
2: know, That's one of the things that feels so foreign to like contemporary experience, the impact of a network like that, especially in a low tech environment and how seismic something like that is, like the ripple effects and how it affects everybody. Like I was just imagining too, like the power of the written word, like when they're like, okay, here's the latest leaflet and we're going to be passing this thing out. And, and just thinking about how irrelevant things like that almost feel now you know like when we've got a smattering of articles coming out constantly there's just this influx of information and then something like this when one person is grabbed or one leaflet comes out the way that that truly does make a significant difference and affect everybody involved and it's it's just kind of fascinating to take a step back and think about that like the how powerful a leaflet could be towards like truly destabilizing things that were happening and uniting people around that Um, because that to me seems like something that has been rendered powerless today and that was something that like is kind of fascinating to have some reverence on the idea of the written word being something that could
0: like totally alter the course of the way people are operating. And also on a just a very like human level how dangerous it is to yeah. to have your hands on that thing, you know, the idea that if you were found with one of those, that's a death sentence essentially. I mean, and not just a death sentence, but but Probably days of horrible physical torture before your inevitable death. And for you, the fear and terror that by being caught with something like that, you could potentially cause the deaths of, again, in a ripple effect, an entire network of of people who are like-minded uh uh you know uh, members of your your cell your sect your 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 community you know and it i think it speaks to um Maldoror's experiences right um, like actual experiences she was married to a man who was instrumental in the uh, the the organization that we see depicted in this film, the MPLA, um, but also her experiences working on the film. I think her first film job I discovered was was as an assistant on Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers, mm-hmm. and that film is also very elaborately focused on the network, the network of the revolution, the network of the Algerian resistance to the French, you know? And, and so I think you see in, in a way that is very different because it's a different culture. It's a different country. It's a different conflict, but that same, that same uh, focus on the, the actual, you know, not necessarily the, the, you know the most action-packed aspects of a revolution but certainly like the most logistically important right the most that's army of shadows
1: right it's like (laughs) no it's about yeah these like dim rooms where these guys like pass notes and then we're told to like strangle a guy or whatever
3: you know (laughs)
2: like yeah. yeah it's just it's like you can imagine too how I don't know. It just feels like everything you would do would be loaded with so much more meaning <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's, it's so easy to just get cynical now and to think that, like, nothing actually contributes towards making things better. And the idea that, like, you know carrying around that leaflet could be a death sentence to you at the same time getting that leaflet to other people like you could actually walk away thinking like i've truly accomplished something with my life and what i believe in um and yeah to to imagine like that impact and that power by developing that network and that type of solidarity that's something that feels so much more dispersed now and something that's like harder to feel as though like actual change is happening or at the very least to like feel that fire in you i feel like and that's like one of the things i like so much about that this movie in particular because it kind of like reminds me of that era and how just the idea of being radicalized that way how that could feel even at the smallest scale Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and on even on a global scale because it was happening right Right. especially
1: (laughs) you know the late 40s shit was popping off everyone was getting independence you know it was like imagine that too just being from some country and reading in the newspaper that, like, thousands and thousands of miles away, like, someone else, just like you, overthrew the British, you yeah. know, fuck them or whatever,
0: like, yeah. If they did it, we can do it. Yeah, That's that spirit. was just the yeah. spirit of the age.
2: Yeah, I really, really love this movie Um, and I, so I had seen it before and I watched it and ideal conditions just you know watching it like at home you know look great everything and I and I knew to, to make the timeline work for today I'm like okay I'm gonna have to watch Samba on the plane uh, which I think should be okay like I hope it doesn't like dilute its power and it was it was very funny it's like so think about like the most inopportune environment for watching this film I had to piss so bad like <laughs> desperately and the guy next to me Was like slumped over and snoring and his breath was like rancid because he ate a bunch of like beef jerky and, and nuts and I he was so out cold like I was shaking him to wake him up to be like can I go piss And he wouldn't wake up. I like (laughs) the amount of force. Like I was like, I can't do it anymore because it would be like offensive if I like assaulting. (laughs) I would be assaulting this guy. And yet I'm like, okay, I'm like, fuck, I like cannot get past this dude. It smells really bad. I guess I'll just like try and watch Samba Zanga. And this movie's so good that I was like, I, for, I didn't have to pee anymore. And I, like, wasn't smelling this guy's breath. I was able to focus, like, even on my laptop with a screen that's all messed up. This movie still shines. But, <laughs> no. but
1: admit that you got some ideas from the uh, the Dutch Gestapo about what you were going to do to that guy. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. He did end up waking up like 30 minutes into the movie. So I, I was relieved and then got to enjoy the film in like uh, nicer circumstances. But at the same time, the film's like power was not diluted. I was still able to, it was nice to be able to engage and remember that um, I could put my troubles aside when I'm seeing something like this. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, it's God. I love. I loved it, of course. And I think the travelogue aspect of it is like so good because so much of the film is Maria's journey from prison to prison to find Domingo. Doming- Domingos. Mm-hmm. Domingos. To find Domingos, and it's like just seeing her in the countryside and the music, the theme, you know, the theme from *Salvage*. Yeah, get it now, folks, because uh, yeah, that that stuff. And then in contrast to like him. Prison being fucking tortured, and then we're getting this like dialectic between the two uh, throughout. But it's just like those are great images, you know? yeah.
2: It's almost holy because she's carrying her child the yeah. entire time, too. And it's she doesn't, she's not tempering her reactions to anything or withholding anything because she has a child with her. Like, even in the throes of agony, she's still j- just screaming and like uttering just pure like misery and pain and suffering and like not trying to be like let me just like keep it together because i got my kid like strapped (laughs) to my chest and i'm screaming in my kid's ear like there's something about it like that that pain and that power she's walking around and she's just like got the kid on her back the whole time you know it's it's a crazy
0: image she's also told by the other folks in the village that that's like uh, uh, that's the tactic she needs to employ right I mean they tell her like here's what you gotta do you gotta go to, to the magistrate or whoever you gotta go to this bureaucrat's office and you gotta scream and cry and you gotta bring the baby so they feel guilty they feel sad essentially because i think it is interesting or important to note that it's like she does go into those places and she does do what she is is told will 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 work she she will suddenly drop to her knees and have this very performative sort of grief but whenever she's then told like nah you know the the you know He's in another place. Like, he's not here. She you know? stops like, immediately. Yeah. She's like, all right, fine. Fuck you, you fuckers. And then she gets up <laughs> and, like, and just goes. And she's she's then on a mission. And, and she isn't just completely, like, useless. So I think it does, it, it, for me, it's I think it's important to recognize yeah. that aspect. Because she isn't just, like, completely beside herself to the point where she, like, doesn't know what she's got to do. She's She knows what she's got to do. And she's very um, she's very methodical and very logical about like her journey, you know, of gathering information and getting what she can from these guys, manipulating them essentially into when she can, like, you know, revealing things that they probably wouldn't normally want to reveal to her, you know, and doing it in her way and using like, I think gender and sex and, and of course like a baby to, to tug on whatever, whatever you know, the tiny warped heartstrings, these fucking officials might, might have. The higher up like, you go, the less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one point where she like does go to like one police station and it's like, it's like they know the drill. So they're like screaming at her before she even like can yeah. get in yeah, the, the office. The window
1: slams Yeah, just like, as like the shot opens and she appears in it like, they see her coming and are like yeah. locking the doors because it's like the white cops. Yeah, they're know? like
0: fuck off. Like we're not. We're it's not going to work on us, you know. And she just turns around and goes like she doesn't, you know, continue on. She's kind of like ah, oh, well, it ain't going to work on these guys apparently. You know? Yeah, one so, of my favorite
2: <laughs> moments with that is when she is wailing and then the one cop is like, hey, like come on, like cut it out, please stop. They're going to beat me up if you. Keep yeah, screaming you're like this! In yeah, it's like a oh, big boo know?
0: fucking who, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, like it's it, what's interesting to me is I read, I, I, or I, you know, as I said, I was watching this interview with uh, Mal Dorar and her daughter, and and they both brought this up, and these were like separate interviews, like years apart, you know, filmed individually. So I thought it was remarkable that they both brought this point up, but they said that when the film came out or maybe over the years, uh, people have been critical of the film in, in her casting choices. And, and apparently both of them pointed out that some people were critical of this film and of her because they said that Domingo and Maria, the actors who were cast were, were too good looking. They were too pretty and that it was, it was taking away from from, you know, the, 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 you know, the destitution that they, they should have shown or that she should have shown. And both of them were like, get the fuck out of here, you ridiculous. And, and Doror specifically was like, well, look, in the first case, the guy that plays Domingos was an actual revolutionary. He was a member of this organization. Like he's a real fucking person. He wasn't an actor. Like I got this guy, but also she, she like attacked criticism of, of saying that, you know, she didn't make this film like, you know, gritty or ugly enough. And, and her, her argument was that like, this isn't about the ugliness and the pathetic quality of, Of the African people, like the people that I'm showing you are are strong and brave and beautiful and joyous. And the country's beautiful. And the country's beautiful. And again, so when you're talking about that travelogue, you know, she's also showing you the, you know, that, that, you know, this isn't a thing that we are to pity. You know, this movie isn't like, oh, pity us, poor Africa. This is about... You know, uh, this is a celebration yeah. of African Africa. These go home, right? Essentially, yeah. You know? yeah. And it was like crazy to me <laughs> to even think that that is like the take, you know, yeah. that people would have on this film. So, so yeah, it, I think it's like again, you know, she's she she's not showing Maria as a, a pathetic character, but as and, and certainly we, we sympathize with her and her plight, but, like, you know, she is on on a mission. And and I think, like, as the film goes on, that becomes, to me, like, so much more apparent. Funny
1: that people accuse them of being, you know, too good looking, because I, I had a thing with uh, the lead actor from... After the curfew, uh, A.N. Alkaf, who plays Iskander. Very handsome. Very handsome, and he's like Richard Conti. He's like Indonesian Richard Conti. Yeah. Uh, and I was like yes, this guy, you know? So, similar thing, where, you know, here's this ex-freedom fighter, and he's a very handsome guy, dashing guy. Dashing. But he's fucking melting down, because uh, he's haunted. Yeah. Yeah. He's
0: coming apart at the seams.
2: (laughs) Well, I was thinking, too, that you mentioning, like, everybody grabbed the the soundtrack to Samba Zanga, because there's that beautiful, like, song that's playing during the travelogue sequences. There's another song in After the Curfew that's also, like, they could be these great like mournful ballads that you could put side by side to evoke a certain quality of both of this both of these films. There's one character in particular and after the curfew, Layla, a sex worker, who sings this really sad song. Um, that to me, like, the tone of it is so similar because, again, it's it's just her voice. There's no backing track. We're just, like, hearing her sing. And it was untranslated in the copy I watched of Samba Zango, but honestly, the lyrics could have applied exactly to that, and it would have made perfect sense about, like, a certain type of suffering. But Layla was probably my favorite character in After the Curfew. She's, like, creating her own, like, personal gallery of advertisements. Life magazine. Yeah, yeah she's, like, cutting out... Um, all of these like beautiful images, and they they kind of chide her for it. You know, they say like, "Oh, what are you like? What are you doing? That's not what these are for. These are meant to be read." And she's like, "But look at how beautiful it is!" And yeah. she's like, "We're running out of wall space because she's pasting it all over, and she's got a scrapbook of her." Particular yeah. favorite. It's like a Lando Lakes butter advertisement.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. But she's a dreamer, just like Iskander. And that's like what links them. And that's why they have those scenes because everyone else has given up or has given in to cynicism or, or nihilism. His buddy Puya. Uh, who lives, is like her pimp, basically, and has this, like, s- cool place where people also gamble. Uh, but this guy is... Oh, a, he
2: owns that joint
1: where they or, got the coffee? Yeah, yeah, not where the... Oh. No, but, like, the house.
2: Oh, right, of Jesus. course. Yeah, or she's right. just, okay. like,
1: actively working. That's you right. Know? Um, and there's, like, gambling. But he is just, like, a twitchy mess uh, yeah. who spends all his money gambling, has, like, no future, no, no prospects. It's just, like... Hanging
0: it out. Well, and that's, uh, that's again, like it's, it's, it's part of his journey. And I guess part of his like descent is, you know, when he comes back, you know, he first talks to his fiance's father and he's like, I'm going to set you up with a real cushy job, you know, just civilians who don't understand him, you know, and they just put him in that public works office job we described. And of course it goes horribly wrong. And then he goes out and he seeks a friend of his who also was a soldier now working in construction and he's he's sort of like talking to this guy and and that dude's like hey man you want my advice don't do anything just chill out take some time to do nothing yeah and get adjusted to society and it's like he's he's a he's a military man the idea of him being idle like and and the pressures that he feels on him and of course his ptsd it's like he can't do that he can't just like chill out and process things so he then goes and seeks another guy who was his commanding officer and we've already you've already introduced him who is hey can you get me some work sure i can give you some work basically you're going to be my hired thug capitalist gangster yeah and and he of course like doesn't want to do that doesn't doesn't feel comfortable with this and it's almost like i've exhausted all of my options that i see in front of me so he goes and commiserates with his other out of work ex-military buddy and it's in this place that I think he gives in to essentially the siren song of Layla because that's how I even saw their interactions because she clearly has like designs on him she's attracted to him she's drawn to him she's flirting with him and in a lot of those moments she's singing that song to him. She's yes. singing it as he's sort of sitting there like wondering what to do while his buddy's like hold on a second I'm gonna go lose all my money in the other room <laughs> whatever
3: you know yeah.
0: whatever I've got you know uh, whatever she has made on her back I'm gonna go lose in that room to these fucking lo- other losers or whatever coming in being like I'm busted right? Okay what can we do? What can we do to make some money you know? <laughs> so it's like in there that it's it's really kind of like he gives in to to his like worst you know the worst voices inside of his head because the only guy now that he can like kind of relate to is also like this very unhinged vet who doesn't have answers for him you know and and it's like no one can really provide him answers and unfortunately the guy that was correct was the guy that was like dude just fucking just I know what you're going through. You got to like just chill. You got to like slow down. Like this world is moving way too fast for you. I get that. I see that. So don't try to yeah. don't try to pace with it. Like you're going to fall apart and and yeah. you know, yeah. I mean that's what happens. Well,
1: unfortunately, his, you know, fiance Norma and her her family, you know, his his in-laws to be are very like middle class, and that's like a huge part of it, of course. He and and he wants to just like not live with with uh you know his soon-to-be father-in-law and brother-in-law who's just this like fucking <laughs> fucking loser uh that guy was a real piece of work just yeah. chasing skirts through the revolution he did nothing you know
0: well to <laughs> that's another connection between the film because there's a there's a revolutionary figure in in zombie who everyone apparently is like hey, we've heard the rumors. You're just out there chasing tail. You're dancing every night, you know?
1: You're You're dancing away the revolution. Yeah,
0: you're with Carlotta. What are you doing, you know? Like, everyone's giving him shit all the time. (laughs) It's true. And I
1: love, again, it's like the community, too, of, of both of the films where it's like, everyone saw you on the dance floor,
0: you know, yeah. like
1: yeah. that type of middle 20th century energy. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: again, the, the low tech network, like everyone's talking, dude, everyone knows what's up, but, but yeah, you're right. You know, like it's, it's like sad because there is this moment of uh, where, where he comes in and he, he is kind of asked like, Hey, you know, what do you want? Like, what do you want to do? And he's like, I, I want to, just be out in the country. I want to have a farm. I want to raise cattle and chickens, you know, I mean, after the curfew, you yeah. know, like.
2: i tahu apa yang the I'm to the i to
0: that's ultimately what he wants. He doesn't want to be in this fucking city. Like, he can't mentally handle it. And and you do almost get, I think, like a flashback where it's just like he's remembering one of his happiest moments of what was probably a very, like, traumatic experience, you know, being in this very brutal War. I mean, we should point out, folks, like, you know, civil wars and revolutions are often like way more brutal and vicious in terms of the combat that people experience because a lot of it is, you know, civilians and a lot of it is just very mean spirited fighting. You yeah, know, I it's, read it's, that the it's,
2: casualties it's, were like the Dutch was 4,500 and the Indonesian people was
0: 25,000 to 100,000. Sure, sure. I mean, like, It's, it's, it's brutal, brutal stuff. And he has this like flashback to one of his like happier memories. And it's just like him and a couple of his military buddies, like chasing down a chicken that they're going to eat or whatever, and being very excited about it. But it's like, this idyllic countryside kind of feeling of like, I'm out here, I'm in nature. Like I'm dealing with very tangible, practical things that are in front of me. Like I'm hungry. I need food. Here's a chicken. Let's catch it. Let's eat it. You know? And it's like, that's what he wants. He wants to, to sort of, I think, be back in that kind of a, of, of an environment. But now he's in like an urban environment. He's, he's constantly like, sweating and, and just surrounded by so much foot traffic and people and yeah you know when you hear a lot of veterans talk about the reintegration of society it's often this feeling of just like everything is so it's moving so fast it's just moving like at a pace that i i can't keep up with in my own head you know
1: yeah because so much of war is just sitting around Mm-hmm punctured by like yeah the most getting the yeah. best chicken you ever had you know <laughs> yeah. Or,
0: yeah having to execute a family or something yeah. like that because yeah. Well, yeah, right.
1: again i was gonna say contrast you know his his dream of the chicken to you know where the film is like ultimately building to the flashback where yeah him and kuya execute uh this family who he learns over the course of the film's events uh didn't do anything wrong you know it was more of just like a plundering situation that the lieutenant sort of sent them in there so they could just steal their shit and then start this import export company after the war (laughs)
2: damn dude so brutal but
1: yeah it's so like foggy and like backlit and like expressionist that i mean it's a very very breathtaking sequence the the sort of like firing squad sequence and even in that moment to your point andy uh, he sort of, like, looks away when he's, like, you know, shooting them. And Puya is not looking away, you know? He's sort of, like, cackling, you know? So, that's not the guy you want to be with. Like, that's, like, the psycho guy in the, in the squad, you know?
2: Yeah, no, I'd, I'd much rather be hanging out with Layla. You know, Layla has a great uh, catchphrase too, which I like. Oh, yeah, Norma seemed great too. No, no, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I just like that Layla had her own catchphrase. She says at least three times in the film about how men, you know, like. Oh, they just never come back. Like, you think you got them, and then they just, they leave you, and you never know if they're ever going to come crawling back to you. And I, it's funny that she just insists on that point repeatedly, like something she is, like, so heavily preoccupied by. But I liked her sass. I liked her little, uh, her little art gallery. I'd like to sit around and, like, cut up some life magazines with her and hang out. It seems, like, quite pleasant. You but, know where I'd like to hang out? the
1: radical sewing shop in Sambizanga, you know, and we can also link the scissors there, you sure. know, but we're, we're introduced to this sewing shop with shots of scissors. And then we learn that the the sort of guy running this place is also sort of like teaching revolutionary theory to some students who are sitting at a table and he's giving this like, this very Marxist breakdown, like,
3: You no branco nem mulato, nem preto. Que há pobre e rico. E o rico é inimigo do pobre. Ele faz que o pobre seja sempre pobre.
1: Don't think about race. This is, cl- this is class warfare, you know, and sort of breaking it down to them. And then it's revealed that there's just, like, all these men huddled on over sewing machines, like, doing work while he's giving,
2: like, this revolutionary seminar. And
1: I, I loved that, you know.
2: Yeah. I mean, most of all, the place I just desperately wanted to be was the, the all-night rager in after the curfew, especially once curfew hits and they are just having a great time singing. In, dude. Yeah. exterminating angel <laughs> yeah because they decide they're like you know there's a few scenes in advance of the party where they're planning and they're thinking like oh man like i don't know we might not be able to make it until like nine and curfews ten that's really risky and they're like fuck it we're just gonna go all night we're just gonna do this thing until the crack of dawn like we're gonna have a blast and they do could you, i was like trying to tell there's like two big musical set pieces during that Uh, where it's like the whole room is participating in the song. And like my best guess is the idea is that that song is sort of like free associational and everyone gets their own solo where they could invent a phrase. Sometimes it seemed like maybe there were a couple like... Known stanzas or choruses that they would all sing along with, but that was just what a pleasure just watching everyone like each new character in the room who you never thought was going to have their own individual solo. They come up and they sing a little ditty and then they step back.
3: <laughs> Yeah, that really makes you right think, time.
1: you know, maybe Iskander should have just chilled out, smoked a blunt, and got on the dance floor, because he, he doesn't really give it a shot. He know? does not.
0: Well, again, I mean, I, 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 I really like, you know, I think that's really when I was, you know, in that party sequence, like thinking of this as like a, a portrait of PTSD, because it's like, again, it's like all these people just celebrating and, and moving on. And, and this guy like can't move on, you know, and he has that moment where he's just kind of like, wow, like on the, the couch and spills some water on this like poor woman's dress or whatever. I shouldn't even say poor woman, like. He just spilled some water on her and she like had a meltdown over it. Like, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And that's when he then storms out because he's just like all this over a little bit of fucking water. It's like, do you have any idea of what real suffering is out there? Right. Like,
1: yeah, He doesn't like the new Indonesia.
0: Yeah, he's very uncomfortable. And he just kind of like fades into the background then at that moment when... This song is sort of brought in to just kind of like fix the mood because yeah. everyone Iskander, loves this song. Yeah, Iskander <laughs> kind of like killed the vibe, you know, like the un the unhinged vet. Like, oh great, you know? Like I mean, yeah, it was making me think about my buddy Mark Metzger, you know, and like those moments where he would just suddenly like turn and you'd have to try to like lighten the mood you know you got to try to like bring him back from that but like he can't be brought back so he he sneaks out yet again and heads to Layla's place you know where I think again he feels more comfortable because you know Puya for
1: broken people hang out right
0: essentially you know like the cast-offs and that's what he's feeling like you know and that's I think why he gravitates towards both Layla and Puya as being like well they're puya can understand me and and leila's not judging anybody you know like
3: no yeah. in this
0: place in this yeah middle class party like i'm just a bum like i'm i'm this guy no one cares they might reference me as some sort of like war hero but that's it i get a slap on the back and then people are are talking about you know their their careers and their, shopping, their jobs and shopping know? yeah all these things that he doesn't give a shit about. He wants to be a chicken farmer or whatever. Yeah,
1: this movie is totally orders core. Uh, now it's like canon. You know, I was I, I thought of us many times. You know, um, but funny thing about the party—that's another like major link between these movies yeah the big party. party yeah and it's like in both films it's like we're gonna have a big party and like people are spreading word of the big party that's like happening on saturday night or whatever and uh in zambi zanga of course that's that's ultimately where we're headed uh this yes sort of like dual dually emotional ending where uh you know everyone learns what happened to Domingos, and then they decide to just dance it off because the revolution must continue, you know? Yeah. But amazing scene. and It
2: looks like another party I would love to attend. Well, yes. (laughs) Look,
1: the Indonesian party looked fun, regardless of how Iskander felt, but the one in Sambizanga, yes, feels much different (laughs) without the alienation of this like guy having PTSD (laughs) and rendering every innocent thing like evil. It's like, Oh, modern consumer society's garbage. You know, this guy's melting down versus the revolutionary dance energy of, of the latter.
0: you know? Yeah. And again, like in that moment when they, when they discover the fate of Domingos and, and one of the, the The important figures in this network, I, I believe it's the it is the masunda, yeah, the 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 sewing man who preaches revolutionary theater uh, theory as well. Um, he says, folks, yes, this is something for us to mourn, but it is also something for us to celebrate. It is something for us to be joyous about. And not in the sense of being like, yeah, better him than us, right? But as in, like, he is essentially Domingos now has has become a martyr. Yeah, Saint Domingos. Right, he's Saint Domingos. And that's why when you were describing earlier, like, the journey of the film and, and like, you know, Maria going around and sort of lamenting and and... Cross cutting and paralleling, like Domingos's, you mm-hmm. know, um, death essentially uh i kept thinking about a movie we visited recently yeah, the passion of the christ <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, i mean yeah. like it's 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 essentially a very similar i mean right it's it's this is the passion of domingos yes like we see him go and we see him yeah like accused and we see him tortured physically uh much like our buddy jesus You know, and, and we see him, yeah, crucified basically. And then, and then resurrected, not, Actually resurrected like Jim Caviezel with holes in his hands as the drums beat, you know. <laughs> pom, but pom, but, pom. <laughs> but 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 yeah, politically resurrected, um, spiritual, more spiritually to me resurrected than than what we saw in that film in the dance of the people at the party, and in also, you know, you want to talk about a song? I mean, the song that is sung over his lifeless body in the prison. Oh my god! Like nearly brought tears to my yeah. eyes as all these voices started to join in as they basically like, uh, you know, tried to lift his soul to whatever revolutionary heaven, you know, they they believed in at that particular moment. I mean, that sequence is, is, is incredible. And the fact that some
2: that so many of them are just laying down while it's happening that it's just something this compulsion they have to to sing him off but they're so fatigued that it can't be a performance it just has to be this ritual it's an exceptionally beautiful scene yeah i think mel could have learned a lot
3: <laughs>
2: had he seen this movie uh, in advance um yeah. Enough <laughs> I Because I don't, don't want to say, like, I want to see Sarah Maldoror's Passion of the Christ, but I would like to see uh, a film uh, influenced by her about uh, Jesus, maybe, I guess. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to. <laughs> At least the structure. Sure. sure. I mean, I don't want to, like, I don't want to, um, you know, make too many suppositions about, like, Maldoror and, like, her beliefs and that sort of thing. But, like, yeah, this is, this is, like, uh, I would see it as, like, a secular you know, uh, a secular film about spirituality, about resurrection, about the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that, because it's like materialist, you know, it isn't just this, this message in something like the passion of the Christ about like, you know, the afterlife or a, hey, is, is if you believe you'll be, you'll, you'll get to the, the good place eventually. Like this is like, hey, you know, sacrifice happens and then we have to do something now we have to act on it. We have to improve this world not just like you know go to church on sunday or whatever not not just believe in some some ghost but like no like we've gotta we've gotta we've gotta get to work we've gotta we've gotta make something out of this moment right now we cannot wait and i think again right you 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 that's why you see at this party then these guys more or less say like all right now we got a plan like you know, this prison, like we got to go, that's going to be the first fucking thing we do is raid this prison. We're going to liberate these guys. And that was the opening. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was the opening. and, and and that's why, you know, you even get the (laughs) prologue where it's very important. She sort of lays out the date because like, No, or the vainglory of command. Like the date of these events is very like rooted in the actual like historical events. Like they, they declare at the end of the film, like, yep, we got a start date. We got a plan, uh, spread the word, spread the low tech network word, right? That, that February 4th, we're kicking it off. And the first thing we're going to do is hit that prison. We're going to go there. And
2: Iskander also himself has to choose the path of action in a moment where he feels that absolutely no justice is being done i mean he's he's becoming so frustrated i think about that earlier scene when he's speaking with his lieutenant and his lieutenant is his former lieutenant is saying you know i want you to be my hired thug and and Iskander kind of focuses in on the fact that While he's talking about his debts, he has these big diamond rings on his fingers, you know, talk about like frustration in a modern consumerist environment and just the fact that it's all profit that he's seeing in front of his face, taking out all these debts. And that's what he does, That you know, all this pain and all this misery he feels throughout the film, he decides to funnel into motivating himself to commit that action by learning that... Rolling thunder mode. Truly, yeah. He was asked to murder a family of refugees that he thought were spies? Is it, what was it that they said? That
1: that was the sort of, yeah, excuse uh, he gave. They were, you know, aiding the enemy, and so you gotta...
2: And I was, there's, so that confrontation at the end, the cross-cutting is really amazing, because he's confronting his former lieutenant in his home, and Iskander pulls a gun out on him, and he keeps repeating, like, you were the one that charged us. For this order. Like you were the one that told us what to do. And in that cross cutting, we then get the flashback where we have the commander saying, like, I take full responsibility. You just all need to go and do this. And there was something about like the way it was all arranged that to me, it felt as though the commander saying that was the same thing as having a gun. Pointed to their heads, which is exactly what Iskander is doing here. Like you told me. And then of course in the contemporary setting, we have the commander saying, Hey man, you're the one that pulled the trigger. Like yeah. I got I didn't do, do anything. I mm-hmm. didn't do anything. You killed once and look at you now. You're gonna kill again. Yeah, devastating, devastating sequence.
0: Yeah, he's he's so like lost, you know. It's it's such it's such a bummer to see someone get so lost and so broken as he is in this film that like he only sees one way out and that is to just like find this figure who represents his pain his his anguish his guilt and then just try to do what he did before eliminate it violently you know i yeah. I, I sort of get the impression that it it's like he doesn't he doesn't go there with the plan to kill him but once he's there yeah you know he's just kind of like i like he wants to confront him but it's like, yeah, he just becomes, like, so overtaken by the memories in that moment that you described flooding back into him that it's like, yeah, look at this fucking piece of shit here, you know? Like, fuck this guy. Yeah. Because I think Puya feels like, hey, maybe we're just going to shake this guy down or something like that. <laughs> it does, you know? yeah. Because Puya even is like, dude, I can't believe you fucking plugged him or whatever. <laughs> like, I didn't think we were going to do that, you know? Yeah. And he's shady as hell, you know? But it's like, yeah... This guy is a symbol of that betrayal, you know, and that's why it's important that it's like he's talking about traitors. He's talking about traitors back in the war, right? We got to eliminate all traitors. And again, as we've described in this now post-revolution, post-war economy in which people are still struggling, it's like, here's this guy just a, a war profiteer benefiting on all that summary he, su- uh, suffering. He's the traitor. Yeah. He has betrayed everything, all of us, the sacrifices we all made. And yeah, it just, it, 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 it floods him at that moment to the point where, yeah,
1: he's, that's all he can do. It reminds me of, and it, it makes me wonder, you know, maybe the director saw it in his UCLA days, but a uh, act of violence, the Fred Zinneman film where, Robert Ryan comes home from the war and terrorizes Van Heflin and his family Cape Fear style Mm -hmm. because he, I guess Van Heflin, I don't remember if he did or not, but like Robert Ryan's character thinks he tipped off the, you know, the German prison guards to a prison escape attempt that led to like everyone getting fucking mowed down. And so Robert Ryan's just like making meaning in his life after the war just like this man this one van heflin is responsible for everything that is wrong with me and the war you know and it's like i mean yeah that's fucked up but like chill out
0: oh yeah i mean yeah like i I was thinking about that and like I, i mentioned like crossfire as well i was just thinking about those... It's always like, Robert
1: Ryan, too. Yeah, it's always know? Robert Ryan, yeah. <laughs> I'm deranged now. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But I was. I mean, that's specifically what I was thinking about. I was thinking of those, like, post-war Hollywood uh, noir films yeah. that that are more often than not about broken vets and guys who really need, you know, counseling, yeah. guys who need help but aren't able to get it in this society now that's just like, not the war's over. Everything's great. We're all making money hand over fist now. Just... You know, the war was awesome as far as we're concerned, but for the guys who were chewed up by it, uh, it's it's not great, and it's it's going to be there forever for them. That pain and that 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 torture. Where do
1: you, where do you put your bra- bravery in the capitalist economy? You know. <laughs> scan there, put it on the pavement, you know?
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Damn.
2: Man, it's funny. I'm thinking about how I kind of teased at the beginning how, you know, some people kind of see some, and I do too, I see some overlap between... Um, after the curfew and Taxi Driver, and now I'm imagining like, oh, what kind of influence might Samba Zanga have had on on Marty? I'm like, oh yeah, he made The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh, <laughs> so like, what would Mel Gibson have made had he seen this film? Maybe uh, that other movie that's like pretty good. Well, you know Ooh. what it
1: you know what it means when you invoke Taxi Driver. Because, of course, Taxi Driver is a coming home soldier narrative. It invokes the Searchers, my friends, the greatest of all coming home narratives. Ooh, and same thing, you know,
2: he's not well. He's certainly not. (laughs) He's certainly not. He gets it off a little easier at the end than uh, Iskander does. Iskander yes. receives a bit of a tough fate. Of John course, Wayne they didn't have
1: the will to win, like Iskander. You know?
2: Exactly, yeah, and, and didn't have a curfew to fight up against. But, like, yeah, it. we all knew, like it's kind of, like you said, with Domingos, you kind of know what his fate's going to be. We kind of also know, with the opening scene of After the Curfew, that there will be some blood spilled after the curfew you know like <laughs> yeah. that's not a plant that they're not going to like deliver upon later in the film and especially because th- everyone's quite cavalier about it as well because they're you also know? like 1950 you know january 8th 1950 is corner. right around the corner like we just hold out for a little bit you know we'll wait for the curfew to pass yeah um,
0: i think also because like most people aren't carrying like what iskander's carrying with right him, right of course. i mean even from the 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 perspective of the the police, the military police, like they they probably aren't. They're just like killing people if they're out after dark. They're probably just gonna be like, "Hey man, like get back inside or whatever." You know what are you doing out here? But by the point that he's at in the film, it's like again, I think he just goes he goes full into military mode again in his mind. He goes instinctual because you know the cops aren't even. If correct me if I'm wrong, they're not necessarily looking for him at the ending, but any idea no. of pursuit he's just of panicking. the authorities. Yeah, he's just he's panicking and he just goes fight or flight and he's running. And it's like the cops almost kind of like accidentally kill him in that film where where it's like they don't wanna shoot him. They don't wanna kill him, but they're he's giving them basically no no choice he's he's like he's trying to go suicide by military police essentially i feel at the end of that film because like even like he gets shot in the leg but like he kind of just gets like accidentally like hit by a car as he's just scrambling away they're trying to just be like dude stay down stop right and and he just keeps scrambling and running and fighting to get out like a like yeah like a wounded animal yeah
1: he's gone rambo he can't he can't separate himself you know That's how I mean. Yeah, he just like not. I'm not saying it's his his fault, but there is certainly yeah a touch of that. Like he's just he's snapped, you know. Yeah, he's so put it back.
0: He's so broken because even like when uh, it's like really like a, a touching moment when you know one of the military police like comes over his like you know his his dying body. He recognizes him from the war, and he sees him, and he's like, holy shit, man. Like, I knew this guy. This guy was awesome. This guy was brave. He was a good soldier. This guy makes mean chicken. Yeah, I mean, whatever, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah he's, like, he's this was like, this guy was awesome. He caught a chicken for us all one day, you know? We all ate. And he's just, like, sad. He's bummed. He isn't like, good, this piece of shit got what he deserved. It was like, what the hell happened? Like, what happened to this guy? You know, well...
1: He was just a student, just a young student.
0: Man, everything happened to him.
1: But
2: yeah, Marsh, you said you you visited a few other world cinema countries this week, too. Which ones did you watch? Yes,
1: I did. I did. Uh, Highly recommend Law of the Border, the Turkish film... I know you got heard. You guys were chatting about it. Well, I'm here to conf- <laughs> almost picked it. Yes, yeah. I, I. It was on my radar from when we did the Borderlands episode. I almost picked it then, and so I watched it the other day, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And a couple of interesting things, like there's a sequence where, uh, I mean, it's about like smugglers at the Syrian-Turkish border, you know, uh, and there's a scene where. Like, you know, there's like modernization happening, like they're building a school and like whatever their smuggling days are are coming to an end. And so like one guy sort of freaks out because he doesn't want to farm and they all have this like showdown shootout that's like extremely reminiscent of Leone. But uh, he had never seen any Leone, you know, of course, in in Turkey at that time. And it's this crazy sequence of, like, rapid cutting of these guys, like, surrounding another man, like, hips on their holsters. It's, like, a crazy moment. It feels so, like, from the future, Mm -hmm. you know, for this, like, 60s Turkish film. Uh, But it rocks, yeah. It's got, like sort of good like neorealist element and then it turns into like a full kind of like genre action kind of film by the end. Damn,
0: yeah, that's what I heard. And I, the only reason I was hesitant was because I saw some people being like, well, it's kind of incomplete and it's this, that, or the other. And I, I really wanted to see zombie Zanga. So I guess I just leaned in that sense, but I shouldn't listen to the fucking idiots on Letterboxd. I mean, just you know? go watch like,
1: it. It's great, Yeah, you know? And mm-hmm. I learned that the the guy who stars in it is like this insanely interesting figure who was also a director, but like at a certain point he, he was like in and out of jail as an enemy to the Turkish government. And he was like, you know, hiding left wing guerrillas. And then eventually he was uh, accused of murdering a judge in Turkey and then fled to France after like being broken out of prison and kept making movies.
2: Whoa, <laughs> so, that's nuts. Yeah, it seemed
1: like he was in on some, you know, revolutionary type action in the, the 1970s. Yeah. So damn. Oh, yeah. uh, and he plays like, he's like the Eastwood in the movie. And the movie was his idea. He like brought it to the director. The director made it much more artful. His idea was like a shoot him up at the border. But Shoot shooting fast- up? Another Passion of the <laughs> yes, Christ yes, oh. reference. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that was that was awesome. I also watched uh, Revenge, which is this like Kazakh Soviet film about uh, Koreans uh, in yeah. the Far East from like 1990. Uh, very interesting. I'm. I didn't love it, but it's. I mean, it's a good film. Of course, it's beautiful, and it has like a seven chapters that cover you know this sort of like a child is murdered, a guy swears revenge. And then it's like, well, that's going to take forever. You know,
3: (laughs) (laughs) know,
1: this this is going to take forever. And so like, there's different chapters about different characters and it all sort of intersects over like a fucking 50 year time period of this one revenge. But I was reading again, fascinating thing. Like, there were, before Stalin ejected them, a million Koreans living in the Soviet Far East. And so that's like a whole rich tradition, and the movie was written by a Korean author. And so they said it's the first film like about Koreans in the soviet far east like no one had ever done that you know so just another like corner of the world that's being dug up by a kazakh director in the soviet system you know making ostensibly a a korean film and then re-dug up by marty (laughs) yeah yeah i mean yeah it's definitely worth a look you know it's it's good stuff so i i did that just yeah just for fun and uh, i was not let down at all
2: hell yeah Yeah, there's so many good ones. I mean, like, I feel like some of them now are pretty canonical that, like, they did. Like, there's some really popular ones. Well, more
1: interesting is a list of which ones you watched before they were restored by the World Cinema Project. Like, when I rented Mysterious Object at Noon in 2006 and made my roommates watch it. Uh, I was in on the pitch right, you know? But now, here it is, World Cinema Project. I just rented the DVD from Facets, you know? <laughs> and you watched the VHS rip of Brighter Summer Day. Oh, yeah, with the double subtitles. That's oh, right. Half the screen is subtitles, you know, because there's, like, Chinese. And... Goddamn, dude. <laughs> Memories of Underdevelopment, I saw a pretty rough copy oh, of that. I saw the Jay back showed us the VHS of that in undergrad, Memories of Underdevelopment. Classic.
0: He did not show that to our class. Oh, really? No. What a rip-off. Yeah, I know, dude. I know. He was talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
2: (laughs) Also a World Cinema Project release. I don't know if (laughs) most people don't know that.
0: Yes, yes,
2: yes.
1: Well, thank you, guys. It was really fun to uh, visit uh, West Java and uh, Angola, which was actually the... Democratic, We've been there before. The Democratic Republic of the Congo. It was <laughs> <laughs> actually the Congo standing in for Angola because Angola was having a war as
2: depicted in the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But next week,
0: <laughs> we're going on another trip. Maybe. Yeah, it's my turn to pick. I'm up. And of course, you know. I mean, I, I realized uh, that uh, if our schedule holds, you know, if nothing horrible happens to any of us along the way, uh, our release schedule will have my episode actually coming out on halloween itself the day that my episode was released so very nice you know when i was coming up with a topic i was sort of like well we just did gore but i'm like we're dropping an episode on halloween itself yes it it would feel very weird and like deliberate of us christmas movies a a dumb way (laughs) to to not kind of do something Halloween related, you know, but we did does just do gore. So I was trying to think like, well, what could we do that's, that's sort of different than that? And, you know, my brain lately has has been wrapped up in a class that I'm going to be teaching next quarter. I'm going to be teaching a class at, at uh, DePaul next quarter on spaghetti westerns. So I've had westerns on the brain. So I thought, how about a good old fashioned genre mashup? Let's see next week, western western horror for our Halloween episode. So, I'm looking for a horror film but a western. Or a western but a horror film. I'll let you interpret it however you'd like but I'm looking for a little bit of a genre mashup. We want something western and definitely for Halloween something spooky. That is your task.
1: Uh, you Yee-haw, and
2: I'm afraid. I was thinking, last me, up some, "Last me up some skeletons. <laughs> oh my God, Jesus. 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 <laughs> Cancel. Yikes.
3: Uh,
1: <laughs> yes, as always, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that good stuff. And you can send emails to Marsha's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast
3: at
2: gmail.com.
3: Apa kau mimpi? Harta benda keluarga yang kau bunuh punah Aku yang bunuh, kau bicara tidak keluar. Segala perbuatanku bisa aku bertanggungjawab. Apa yang telah terjadi sudah ada terfusi. Aku tidak ada membunuh orang. Emak aku yang mengerjakan, tapi kau yang memerintahkan. Kau yang mau bertanggungjawab. Ingat ini satu rahasia Kerjakan sendiri. Apa pasti mereka bersalah? Perkaranya belum terpeksa. Tidak perlu. Harap-harap ke ini harus dibasmi. Obat tidak ada, makanan tidak ada. Di mana aku mencari? Uang perlu untuk perjuangan. Kata mereka akan disita oleh Ada perempuan dan ada anak-anak. Jangan sentuh benda terhadap harus setuju Pak dan Aku tidak mesti, ya. Aku yang perintah. Aku tanggung jawab. Tanggung jawab. Itulah yang penting. Apa yang kau salah salahkan? Kau yang memutuskan.